Good afternoon, evening. Very welcome. Uh, you're all very welcome to uh, Kellogg College. And also, I'd just like to say that we're um, hello to all our students. We've got apparently thousands of students joining us. It's being live streamed. Um, and also, if you want to watch the presentations back, uh, it'll, there'll be a link on the website um, after today. So, so, so please do that. So we're all gathered here today and around the world to um, discuss a very very topical issue, and that is Brexit. And so hopefully by the end of this afternoon, we'll at least have a little bit more insight as to what's going on in relation to Brexit. Um, so we have two uh, fantastic speakers and insightful, very insightful academics here um, to speak to you about this topic today. We have Professor Andrew Oswald, who's a professor of economics and behavioral sciences at um, Warwick University, and Andrew has published in a wide range of issues, including uh, trade unions, uh, labour contracts, um, happiness and mental health issues, um, ha um, homeowning, um, and he's obviously also an expert in issues around Brexit. So Andrew's going to talk first for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then we'll take some questions for about five minutes. Um, and that will be followed by uh, Professor Danny Dawling. Welcome, Danny, to Kellogg as well. Uh, Danny is uh, um, Halford Mackinder, Professor of Geography here in Oxford at the School of Geography and Environment. And Danny has published uh, an astonishing number of absolutely fantastic books on issues around inequality and basically unfairness uh, in contemporary society. Um, and again, Danny's also going to speak um, for about 10 or 15 minutes, followed by questions. And then we'll have quite a bit of time to open it up to the floor. So if you've got questions for both of them or if you've got comments to make um, about you know, cross-cutting both presentations, then, then please do. Um, so I'm going to hand over now to Andrew. Thank you. Brexit, you'll be surprised to learn. And I haven't presented this work before. It's really a kind of large-scale statistical analysis. We're trying to get to the bottom with these colleagues. I'll give their names more fully at the end. Uh, we're trying to get to the bottom of what caused uh, Brexit. I'm sure many of you have thought about this topic. Uh, one could look at the newspapers that came out just before, some of these uh, widely, widely read newspapers that came out just before, and think that somehow those newspapers themselves played a causal role in stirring up a, uh, a particular form of the Brexit vote. I'm not going to pursue that. I'm going to think of these newspapers as a conduit, one might say, as reflecting a genuine kind of feeling within the country. Perhaps you can see some of these words, greedy elites and so on. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to pursue that per se. Uh, in case you think, and I have some friends and colleagues who do believe this, that somehow Britain has learned to regret its decision. There are some people in Britain who uh, think that, that somehow people have changed their mind. Then you might be interested in the latest YouGov data. I see I've lost my formatting very slightly on my flash drive, but it doesn't matter too much. Um, you can see the question. Um, this is people think it was right or wrong uh, after the June 2016 decision. You see it's very evenly balanced in 2016 and remains essentially exactly the same level of lack of, of, um, lack of clear majority now. So this remains 
uh, a very important and in principle divisive issue, of course, within our country. And my own view is that an analysis of Brexit, although it matters in my judgment uh, tremendously in itself, might, may also tell us something about what's going on in a broader sense in Western society. There are overlaps with uh, the Trump election and, and so on. Um, let's go through some ideas about what might have caused Brexit. We're going to put all these together and I'm going to give you coefficients, you might say. Today I'm really a kind of statistician, um, but we want to weigh up the different influences. The average age in this room is fairly high, ladies and gentlemen. Was it all, um, I was about to say the fault of, was it all a result of older people uh, voting for Brexit? Uh, were the old in our country thumbing their nose, you might say, to the European Union, perhaps because of some hangover from um, the Second World War even, or the extended family's views about the Second World War? Uh, of course, some other kinds of older individuals also favoured Brexit. You may like to know that Jonathan Meachie was a student at Balliol College, Oxford, and this gentleman was also a student at Balliol College, Oxford. Uh, and there are other kinds of non-university um, uh, people who voted or are keen on Brexit. This is Mr. Henry Bolton with uh, an aide here. <laughs> Mr. Bolton was until very recently uh, the boss of the, the head of the UKIP party. Um, now, this is a serious point of view, and right after the election, it was, it was very commonly believed. Here, I've just given you a clip from The Independent, a man called uh, Ben Chu. Uh, why did we leave um, ben blamed, if that's the word, or of course he wasn't keen on it, but attributed it to a big age divide. And I think some of that continues today. So we're going to look at that statistically. Here's another idea. Uh, perhaps the British are just anti-foreigners compared to some other, uh, especially West Europeans. Not, not a very nice sentiment to believe in, but let's just consider that as a scientific possibility. <coughs> Uh, this is a kind of representative uh, extreme Brexit person, Mr. Farage, I suppose. Though he's not against all foreigners, this is uh, him with a well-known international hotelier. <laughs> Here's hypothesis three. Um, perhaps Brits felt financially hard up and uh, they perhaps lashed out against the status quo and one representative, you might say, of the status quo was the European Union. There's some really very interesting statistical evidence, I think, consistent with common sense, that when people are unhappy and you give them a chance to do any kind of vote against the status quo, that unhappiness appears to have a causal role in, we might say, encouraging a vote against whatever, whatever is the established view. And um, some of my colleagues have, in the Journal of Public Economics, just published, I think, the best causal proof of that and... Uh, to cut a long story short, they, they looked in particular at unhappiness caused by the death of a spouse in middle age. Now, if your spouse dies in an incredibly unpleasant event um, in middle age, then that's essentially astonishingly bad luck. But viewed as a kind of rather bleak, admittedly natural experiment, they showed that those who lose their spouses tend in the next, the next time they're asked about their political views to have switched towards rejecting whomever, wh whoever is in power even though the government, if, you, if your spouse dies in your 40s and 50s, the government by and large can't be blamed. It, it seems natural hu a human reaction, doesn't it, when you're unhappy to somehow strike out. And that's a, that's a possibility uh, as another influence. 
Um, I, I want to give some time to Mr. Darling, Alice Darling, who, who following up that, came, came up with this interesting quote that, that I noticed a few months ago. I don't think Brexit would have happened hadn't, hadn't been for the economic events. Uh, Darling said, people felt squeezed. And, and I'm going to show you a fair amount of evidence consistent with that view. Of course, politicians tend to know a lot about human beings. That's partly why they can get elected and stay in uh, power. Um, and I think Darling ha has, has a good sense of it. So we're going to examine those ideas. The data set will be something called Understanding Society in 2016. We'll have a random sample of uh, British individuals. These data were released to a small number of research teams, including ours in uh, Britain, uh, through the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council. So we have about 250 people a week uh, from the start of January up to the day before the election. Of course, we, ideally, we'd like to know, we'd like to have a camera over people's shoulders seeing what they ticked in the booth, but for some reason, we can't get that. Um, this is one approach to the data. Another would be, and it has been followed, to ask people after they come out to the voting booths. You, you may have an intuition about which you prefer, but that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to look at. One of the advantages here is we know a lot about them. And of course, they're, not, they're, they're being followed through time, uh, partly because they've consented, just as a, a fundamental social science database, as some people here will know. They're not being tracked through time uh, for this particular issue. If you know about regression equations, that's what I'm going to use. If you, if you don't, then it, it doesn't much matter. Just think of people as dots on a giant piece of electronic graph paper. And we're going to look for the underlying patterns uh, hidden in those dots. We're going to look at best fitting lines, correlations. Here's the key question that we'll use. Should the UK remain a member of the EU or leave the EU? So I'd like you to imagine, ladies and gentlemen, you're part of this survey, you're being interviewed. Uh, we've got two or 300 people every week, every week, every week in the run up to June in 2016. As you might guess, we do see a time trend in the data. So through, to, through the approximately six months, people do become a bit more likely to vote for Brexit, speaking loosely, or to answer the leave uh, here. But that, the time trend will not be my primary concern today. Now, we conclude that Brexit wasn't really about the old outvoting the young. There's a, there's a smidgen of truth to that, and I'll show you exactly what I mean. And it wasn't really about people, the British being anti-foreign, although there's a smidgen of truth about that as well. Uh, we find only the very young were hugely remain, only the very young. Uh, we were not expecting to find this, and so we, we had to check the calculations. I'm going to show you now the, what you might call the, the graph of my feelings about Brexit as a function of age. So I'm going to have the probability of voting for Brexit on the y-axis. I'm going to have age on the horizontal axis, and we're going to look at the, the structure. I suppose just after the election, I, I, I chatted to many people, and they thought that the line would sh uh, slope sharply upwards, and it was particularly the really old who wanted out of the EU. And that seemed a reasonable idea to me until we started looking at the data. This is what the data looked like. So the dots are the probability of voting for Brexit, you might say, as a function of age. Here I've put on some confidence intervals, but today I'm just going to ignore those, so I'd like you to look at the dots. The base here, normalized to zero, is, is people right at the end of their teens. So you can see, I hope you see that 
what, what, we, what we find is it's really nothing like a smooth upward sloping line. It's not like a dose-response relationship in a, in a linear medical sense, but rather that the, the young are tremendously in favor of Remain, uh, including uh, the people getting into their 20s. But by the end of their 20s, there's very little difference. Now, this is controlling for other things, I should say. Here I have a regression equation like a giant recipe with lots of different ingredients, and each ingredient has a different coefficient on the front. So this is the influence of age per se. This is Cater's parable, so it's a partial derivative if you care about mathematics. But the key thing is, despite Ben Chu's intuition, perfectly reasonable intuition, uh, it, it's really not like that. There's just a very young effect, and then then it's pretty flat. Uh, what about the theory of it's to do with the British don't like um, foreigners, or in particular Europeans, I suppose. In our regression equation, we, we have a, people fill up ethnic categories, if that's the right word. And if they tick the box saying, I am white British, which, which Andrew Oswald would, um, if, if they tick that box, they are a bit more likely to want Brexit, Catrus Paribus, holding other things constant. But it's not an enormous effect, six percentage points. So it might take you from 47% probable to 53% probable. It's not trivial, but of course, that couldn't possibly be, on, on our analysis anyway, it couldn't possibly be what, um, what created Brexit per se. Uh, instead, uh, I suppose the most striking predicted to us, I'll come to one other important one later, is that it's people's feelings about finances. Their feelings about finances. This is a question that we discovered is a, is a strong statistical predictor. How well would you say you yourself are managing financially these days? You might like to think, ladies and gentlemen, if I got you to fill up my survey forms right now, how would you answer that? How are you feeling financially these days? And these are the options that people were given in the Understanding Society data set. Of course, I'm sure I'm right in saying that these questions were not designed to have anything to do with a possible Brexit. These are just mapping feelings about having enough income or not in our country. Living comfortably, which now is the one I would tick, although I have had periods where I'd be much further down. Living comfortably, doing all right. The respondent has to choose just about getting by and so on, different levels of difficulty. Uh, just to tell you how many people tick those different boxes, about a third of Britons say, I'm living comfortably. This is all about feelings. I'll show you the result for actual income in a second. Uh, doing all right, slightly more numerous, but fractionally under four out of ten people. And then we see the distribution. And that gradient, uh, that structure, is, uh, is the key thing that we think we discovered that we didn't know that really works. Uh, statistically. I remind you why that might be sensible. If you think about real wages in our country, of course there was a, a good period in 07 and the financial crisis hit. There have been drops in real wages more or less ever since, although we're coming back a bit. Uh, my hunch, I'd be delighted to discuss this with you in the open discussion period, is that this effect has changed world politics. This effect is driving Trump and many other factors but I'm going to pass over just at the moment, if I may. Uh, what our analysis finds is, is the following. So these are, now, these are now my boxes for how I feel financially. 
The omitted category, the base, the normalization at zero, is um, doing uh, very comfortably, I think were the words. And that goes up to about 13 percentage points. So if you, if you move Mr. Oswald from his current very comfortable position to getting close to when he was a graduate student who wasn't doing so well, then uh, that, that's a spread of about 13 percentage points. That's a big move, um, considerably bigger than the 6% we were talking about, although we have to accumulate them all. And I'm not saying any of, uh, any of the key things we'll talk about today, any of those is, is trivial. Here's the effect of actual income. We just did these calculations quite recently. The paper is on the web, but I think we haven't got this in. This is the same scaling. Um, this takes us, the omitted category here is more than 5,000 pounds a month. The base, the normalization here is more than 5,000 pounds a month. So th these are very comfortable people. And you see going from very comfortably off in our country to really quite hard up objectively, just a thousand a month or so, it, it is associated with, in, in the low income levels, wanting Brexit more, but nothing like feelings. I have a PhD in economics, even though I'm not really a, just a regular economist any longer, um, but most economists would find this a worry, or at least they don't teach their students to think like this, they haven't been taught to think like this. Feelings, loosely speaking here, are twice imp as important as actual things. Roughly twice as important doing the scaling. Uh, that, that's just to remind you of the scaling. Roughly, we've got doubling on, on feelings. Some other patterns, and then I'll pass over to uh, Danny. There are probably a lot of university degrees in this room, I reckon. And, um, of course, that's a, in a sense, that's a huge problem for us in understanding the world. The day after the Brexit decision in my corridor, they're almost all Europeans in my, in my corridor, some Americans and just two or three Brits. We have a huge economics department. In my corridor, people were shocked. They could not believe the Brexit decision. I had a little wager on Brexit. Um, I had a little wager on Trump and so on because I, I take a different kind of view. I could tell you why if you want. But the, my colleagues were shocked, and most people with university degrees were. And why is that? It's because we go to dinner parties with other people with university degrees. That's my, that's my theory of it. That's a very big effect. That's of the order of 13 14%, the same as the spread from very poor income feelings or very poor um, feelings about my finances to very good. This similar kind of spread, a very big effect. Uh, being a woman holding other things constant, is associated with about a five percentage points higher chance of voting remain. So the women were more EU-leaning, at least on our analysis. Uh, there were uh, strong regional effects. I I'm sure Danny, a d very distinguished geographer, will talk about that. Um, these are large in some cases. They, um, I suppose I would view them, I'm not a geographer, of course, um, I would view them as in general factors that we'd need to explain with an, a next set of variables. So longitude and latitude uh, will have a bit of predictive power around the south coast and so on. Dan is a better person to speak to this than I am. But of course we know in our data, it's hardly a surprise to you, some of the north voted uh, strongly for Brexit and so on. And that's clearly not about longitude and latitude, unless I don't understand the data. So the social scientist in me 
wants to understand those regional effects. In my regression, they're just called coefficients on regional dummies. Um, so they're shifters in my equation, but I, we haven't, our team hasn't gone any deeper into those. And if you're interested in the other covariates, we might say, or the other influences, being unemployed amazingly has no predictive power. I was surprised, being a semi-paid-up economist. Uh, having children has no statistical uh, predictive power, even though you might think people with children have a different view. And living in a rural area is also has a coefficient of essentially zero. What about immigration views? Uh, we can't study that directly because we don't have an appropriate question. I mean, it's clear in some sense immigration views mattered and still matter, but the analyst in me would, would not even know how to approach that, just in the sense that if wanting to stop immigration is so similar to, in a sense, the left-hand side variable, wanting Brexit, that I, I'd have to think my way through what would be the appropriate scientific experiment in that case. Uh, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, we find as a matter of statistical prediction and possibly as a cause and effect relationship, you can judge, uh, there are two things that really matter. Financial feelings, not your finances. Financial feelings and w whether you have a high level of education or not. It'd be great to get everyone's views on that. I suppose my broad sense of it is that these are the things that tell us about human insecurity or security. And that's very much at the bottom of this, in my judgment. Those seem to have been the largest influences, and I will stop on that point. Thank you very much. Right, we'll just take some questions specifically to Andrew for five minutes. Um, I'm going to pass the mic over. Would anybody like to ask anything or say anything? Yes, sir. You have to use the mic. Okay. <laughs> is this on? It is. It's, it's going through the live stream. There's okay. no, micro, uh, there's no okay. uh, loudspeaker, right. though. Uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, how does age and socioeconomic group affect voter turnout, which was clearly a big yes. factor in the referendum? Yes. Um, I, I, we don't know from this, but you raise a fantastically important point. Um, here we're just studying what people say uh, are their views about the EU. We're not measuring who actually went into the booths. And I, sh I should explain, because I didn't, uh, uh, as we went through, that we can't get to 50% Brexit on our data. Like a lot of, like, you saw the YouGov, like a lot of samples. And my reading of that is that the people who were against the EU had a much stronger motivation to go to the booths. And that's a, you could say that's a source of bias, a, a certainly, a, kind of lack of representativeness in our data set. We are stuck with it, of course, because you're not allowed to ask or to, it's much harder to work out who literally went to the booth. Does that answer your, is that, is that sufficient? Yeah, I, I, I canvassed for Remain in Oxford and oh. I found a difference in attitude. There were Leave campaigners as well when I was out in the poor market mm. and they were much more militant and their responses yes. were much more sort of yes. accurate. A lot of Remain people thought it would be okay, and they maybe didn't have time to go and vote. They just assumed it would all yes. revert to Remain. That was quite a factor. I, think. I do think the intensity 
if that would be the word, um, ex post we know now d did seem to vary. And that, and that turned out to be more important than people had probably realised. This gentleman, and then the lady to his right, if that's right. Thank you again for a very, very clear presentation. Um, simple question. How much do you think Brexit has cost us? How much has Brexit cost us? To date, in terms of all the toing and froing, all at the public expense, yes. the discussions and lunches, etc. I mean, it's got to be in the multi-millions, hasn't it, I think? Although I'm a professor of economics, among other things, I don't know the answer, and we don't, we don't study that, but I, I can understand where your heart is on this issue, yes. I'm sure it's a substantial sum. I'm sorry, I can't give you a pound okay, amount. thank you very much. Okay, joining uh, yes. everyone who said this is There's no amplification of the mic, by the way, so you have to I speak need, I need to speak louder, sorry. Yes. So, a wonderful presentation. My question is on the subjective versus objective indicators of financial strain. Yes. Uh, so, the uh, real income is on for individuals, not households, right? The I data think it's that you household have. monthly income. It won't make household. much difference. We have it both ways. Okay. Funnily enough, I've forgotten off, offhand so, which I'd present it. Right, but to formulate this into a question, if we knew uh, the extent of this income that's precarious, you yes. know, insecure, yes. would that uh, put the subjective and objective evaluations closer or make it you more meaningful? If, yes, you, you raise an interesting idea. So if I understand, if we had an objective measure of precariousness, of actual income, yeah. would that work? Yeah. And my instinct is that it would be it would be influential. Mm. Um, I don't think I know how to do that with understanding society, but I probably could if I if I thought about it hard enough. Okay. It, but it's um, yes, you, um, what you say makes sense to me, mm. and no doubt financial feelings are partly capturing that volatility or whatever yeah. it is. Okay. okay. So here we'll just take one more question now, but we'll have time later, obviously, for questions. Do I pass it over so there? Andrew, uh, Tim Shipman, the Sunday Times journalist, in his study of Brexit, in his concluding chapter, makes quite a lot of the ethnic minority vote for Brexit, oh. particularly British people who came to this country from India and Pakistan, who may want to develop links with those countries and who were aware that the European Union had pursued a very discriminatory trade policy against them. And mm. consequently, those people were strong supporters of Brexit. And Mr. Shipman mentions Birmingham and Bradford, where the Muslim British vote was particularly strong for leave. But also, you may say the Afro-Caribbean community as well really didn't have a great deal to celebrate in terms of the impact of European Union membership on their lives. Right. Do, do you have any views on that? Do you and your well, team, have you have, considered yeah, that? We do have, um, should I call them ethnic grouping indicators? We, we do have those. We didn't get much action from them, statistically. Of course, I don't know. This depends on what you might call self-classification of individuals and... Um, Maybe their classification would be different from mine or, and, and so on. But it was the, I've, I've given you the key statistical finding, which is the so-called white British. Not a very attractive term, but white British. That was the biggest coefficient. Okay, that, that, that's it for now. Just for now, I'm going to hand over to Danny Dorling. Thanks for those questions. And those people that didn't get a chance to ask, you can go first in a minute. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a great pleasure to follow Andrew. Uh, he always does these things properly, um, in, in that he, he looks at every possible cause, does it rigorously, and is amazingly unbiased. 
uh, I'm afraid I am a bit more biased, <laughs> as you can see from my title. I only really uh, have faith in what I'm saying when I find something out which is the opposite to which I believe. Uh, I'm going to show you 11 or 12 slides, and these are circumstantial evidence, uh, and I think they largely back up what Andrew's found, and we didn't, we didn't collude in this, which is interesting. Um, it wasn't migration. Now, migration has been the most salient item in the British election survey for election after election after election recently. Uh, British political scientists have been embarrassed about that, so they haven't made much of it. Um, but if you're looking at one of the best predictors of votes, migration was there. But although we had an increase in migration, it wasn't huge, and it particularly wasn't high in the areas that voted to leave. And it wasn't as big as the migration a century ago. Um, this is a European map. It's stretched to the areas where people live as shown large. The dark blue areas are where over 20% of people were born in another country. So this is London. London, lots of migrants. London, votes remain. This is Paris. This is Madrid. This is Switzerland, right? The place with the most migrants in Europe. And this is the north of England and Wales, which has less than 5% overseas migrants and is similar to Eastern Europe, okay? a place that people do not go to. Um, I don't think enough is made of that. Over the cost, I think the biggest cost is to people's lives, which we haven't uh, said. I grew up in Oxford in the 1970s, and I can remember the National Front writing how certain people had to go home um, and spraying swastikas on subways. Um, we don't, it's really interesting how little anger there has been so, so far about Brexit over, in effect, almost exactly the same thing has occurred as occurred then with the National Front in the 1970s. The map, uh, Andrew said I'd look at the map. The map is absolutely fascinating. I must have drawn 10,000 maps of Britain in my life. After the first couple of thousand maps, they all begin to look the same. It doesn't matter whether you draw GCSE results or health or whatever, you get the same map. This map is different. Okay, big regional effects. Scotland had a different enemy. The enemy was here. Ireland, they had some idea that this thing was almost impossible. Um, we don't understand about Ireland here. We're learning. I mean, there were lots of ups to Brexit in terms of things that we're learning. Liverpool, Manchester, vote remain. Uh, you do have high leave votes in some small places in the north, but they really are insignificant uh, on the edge. Here's Oxford, so we are in a bubble. There's Cambridge. The majority, about 59% of the leave voters in the south of England, 59, 60% of it is social class A, B, C, 1. Right. And that, that needs to be remembered. The other thing that needs to be remembered is just how precarious this thing was. The reason that we were shocked was partly because of the dinner party. We and Andrew have been to dinner parties more than one. Um, partly due to the dinner parties, but partly because the spread betting got it wrong. And the spread betting, as far as I'm aware, has never got it wrong before. So we sat there smugly in our dinner parties going, oh, we've looked at the spread betting, aren't we clever? It's going to be okay. What we didn't realise is that even if that spread betting had been correct, 
and it had been a 52% remain, 48% leave, it wouldn't have been okay. It would have obviously carried on. Something much more interesting is happening. That text is showing you how, far it, how fast it moved around. This graph is better. Austerity starts around here, 2010. Very, very bad. Life expectancy stops rising. Absolute poverty starts rising. Food banks begin to multiply. The number of homeless on the streets doubles, doubles, doubles again. And the leave vote is massive in the polls. We get it down to about here, and David Cameron thinks he's okay. He can have a go at this. He can have a bet. And so he pulls it there. And even a few days before, he's still winning, right? There isn't, there wasn't a settled view. This isn't like an election. It hasn't gone on and on for decade after decade. This is a one-off thing uh, that, we, that we did. And it was largely about the Conservative Party and that party's internal problems, which I think come from being a very, very old party. Um, another c claim about this not being a settled view, this is a weird kind of new diagram I've devised. So if you can't understand it, that just means you're normal. Nobody, nobody's seen this. Uh, along the bottom, I'm showing you rate of change. And up here is the proportion of people voting from 1997 onwards for either UKIP, the referendum party, the BNP, the English Democrats, so basically far right. 1997 with James Goldsmith, I had, that's 2%, about 1% of the vote. Almost nothing. European election gets up 2004, goes down again. 2009 gets up just below 6%, down again. Huge increase up to 2014 in the European election, up to 13%. And then, if you like, Brexit is a rise of that. That vote is now here with UKIP. There is not a set of people in Britain who hold these views consistently. There is a group of people in Britain who can, if you throw enough tabloid newspapers at them and enough money, be persuaded just before a European election to change their mind and vote in a particular way. But these are not long-held views. Some of you may have long-held views. It would be amazing if somebody in this audience doesn't, but the population as a whole is not like you. Um, and this is true of politics in general. Most people don't have an opinion about most political things most of the time, but particularly when it comes uh, to that kind of voting. There's been a lot of analysis. Andrew's this is my favorite analysis so far. But none of the analysis that I've seen looks at who was trying to get this result. Uh, this is Britain overseas territories and other European overseas territories where as the slowly, story slowly unravels, we learn more and more of the people involved in Brexit grew up in one of these places or had money hidden away in one of these places. Okay, there, there was a push um, from that to basically get the overseas territories out of EU control. Here are the four men I think are key. Way back to James Goldsmith, who spent a lot of money on his referendum party. It takes time. There's Nigel. And here's these two, Dominic Cummings and Matthew Elliott, uh, who were the two key members of the Leave campaign. They really matter. Why they wanted this really matters. Why do people who funded them matters? Leave got 52% of the overall official funding. Remain got 48%. Now, you might say Remain also had the Prime Minister, but Leave also had the tabloids. Uh, Matthew Elliott worked for the Taxpayers' Alliance, which is a group of people who don't like paying tax um, beforehand. Uh, and we, 
do, I think, need to study this side of what actually went on. They did not expect the result. They were shocked. Just like Boris Johnson was shocked and Michael Gove was shocked. They expected to get really close and it was going to be a long campaign. They had no plan for winning. That became obvious. Two more graphs, maybe three, and then I'll stop. This graph is important for the next one. Each of these little bars is a constituency in England. This is the 10th most affluent constituencies in England. Okay, this, this column here. There's a few more because we can't divide them by 10. But essentially, that's the most affluent. And they almost all vote Conservative. They're blue. Apart from Sheffield, Hallam, some other liberal area, and I guess Hampstead and Highgate. But they're the richest. 10th of Britain. The next 10th, the next 10th, the 7th 10th, the 6th 10th, still majority Conservative. The 5th, half and half, and then the poorest 40% of Britain constituencies by the index deprivation. When it comes to traditional party voting, people know where they stand. If you're in a poor area, you vote Labour because they care about you. If you're in a richer area, you vote Conservative because they'll try and look after your wealth for you. And elections and winning them are about trying to move people on the margins of that. There's Brighton in the middle. So what you have to do is memorise that, okay? Memorise that distribution and I'm going to show you the Brexit vote. By exactly the same constituencies and just for England, so we don't have to worry about Scotland and so on. Now, the richest tenth of areas, which are almost all Conservative, all vote Leave. Sorry, all vote Remain. All vote Remain. They're almost all yellow. And that fits your people who are comfortably off, enjoying themselves, fine, and Conservative areas. Now, if you begin to look at the rest of Britain, you'll see that, in general, there are more Leave constituencies, only just majority Leave than Remain. The light purple is where it's ever so marginal, the light yellow is where it's ever so marginal. This was drawn by Daniel Watts, and I think it's a brilliant piece of work. And the fascinating thing here is that these middle four, which remember are majority Conservative, majority Conservative, majority Conservative, majority Labour, are the most voting out. There's actually slightly more Remain areas in the poorest parts of Britain. So, and this is the leap into generalising, fitting. It is poorer conservatives. That is the group, people. People who don't feel well off, in areas that are voting for the conservative, conservative Party, they probably voted for the Conservative Party. They're certainly not well off Tories. They're annoyed about what's been happening, and they want to change and they want to fix it. And when you get a distribution like this, it's very difficult to model because you've got things going on which are not linear. But it's an annoyed conservative voters or other annoyed people in more conservative areas who are not that well off. Hence a large amount of the southeast, majority of the southeast. Hence social class A, B and C1 because in fact most people in A, B and C1 are not actually that well off. They're better off than the working class but they're not as well off as the top 10%. So this is where we're kind of stumbling towards. Final graph just leaves something far too complicated and you probably can't see it, but to put it up there, this is the inequality measure, the OECD Gini coverage of inequality. And you'll have to take my word for it, but I'll read you down 
of all OECD countries in the world, the most unequal is Chile, then Mexico, then the USA, partly hence Trump, Turkey, it was Estonia that's actually got better, Israel, and then Britain. So we are the most economically unequal country in Europe. Why were we the first country after Greenland to leave? Because things are going badly wrong here. Greenland was a long way away. Greenland, with a population of 56,000, actually spent three years negotiating its first deal uh, before the transition period. But Greenland's got fish, um, a lot of fish, which were worth negotiating. I'm going to just leave you with that. Um, I think, in hindsight, we didn't get it as wrong as we thought. You know, the polls were around 52, 48. We were just a bit smug about the spread betting because the spread betting had been right uh, so frequently. The spread betting got it wrong. We got a result we didn't expect. And then we, the establishment, posh people, people who live in the 10th richest areas, began to discover that we can't easily turn this thing around. And that was a shock because the elite in Britain have always been able to turn things around in the past. Um, but there isn't an easy way to do this. A second referendum isn't a foregone conclusion when you've got a population who is so annoyed about what has actually happened to them. And I think that's the kind of state we're in at the moment, and partly why we're still trying to understand uh, what went on and what's likely in future. If anybody wants to ask me a question or so on, or we can both answer questions in a minute. First, and then just more, more generally. Anyone have a question? Right. That is the hardest geographical place to get a mic to in the room. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. That was really fantastic. Um, obviously, the, it, the obvious thing is that Cameron got it really wrong, and he really didn't know that it was his constituents that was going to push them out but I would just the statement you made about the 1980s and I was um, radically anti-fascist in the 1980s and and we you know there was a lot of campaigning we got very very angry but the, the difference now actually is um is that I'd have to go and give my father a good speeding if um you know and that is the this the proximity of the people um, in families, not necessarily the dinner party friends, but in families who are, who, I mean, everyone I know has got someone in a family or someone, a, work, a workmate, who voted the other way, which is, you know, in some ways more shocking. That didn't happen in the 1980s, actually. You, you, yeah, you may have had an unusually liberal family in the 80s. Because um, think about grandparents. Once you go through all four of them, you know, were they all not racist? You know, uh, Racist, but the extremes, I suppose the yeah. extremes, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, d I just, um, there may have been political differences in the families than they were in the 1980s, but it was, I mean, it's interesting, we haven't gotten angrier, and I, sometimes yeah. I do feel like going out and just, I don't know, doing <laughs> something, because I'm so angry, yeah. but it's hard to know where to direct it. In the 80s, there was all these ways that we could direct it, yeah. and now I find it quite frustrating. Yeah. I don't know where to, where to who, who, I, I what just do think I it's do? one of the most interesting things in this coming year. Um, is people who, re you know, who think that they're here, so they'll probably be okay. They might even have paid £5,000 to get a citizenship, but are not sure. 
Um, and the degree you'll know people, the degree of upsetness, it's a very, very private upsetness at the moment. Um, but it's in future, in 10 or 15 years' time, when the story's told, the story, I think, will largely be a story of the British people living in the mainland and the people from the mainland living here and what's happened to them and these years of their lives. And it's incredible how quiet it is about that at the moment. about Northern Ireland, mm. which as far as I could see didn't feature at all in the so-called Brexit debate, although if people had asked anyone Irish, they would have got a fairly informed opinion. Uh, just today, Jeremy Corbyn seems to have gotten off the fence of constructive ambiguity mm. and said mm. some form of a customs union would have to be put in mm. place. He didn't specify the customs union. Is that mm. sufficient for stability? in Northern Ireland, political, economic, social? It's partly, I mean, this is what I mean about the, the British learning about Northern Ireland. I mean, it's amazing what it takes. Um, and, the, and the level of, and people arguing against the Good Friday Agreement today. Kate Hoey apparently was arguing against the Good Friday Agreement today, unbelievably. But it's much bigger than Northern Ireland because essentially, as long as the EU treats Ireland as a proper member of the EU, then if the British bang a wall up on the, on the Irish border, the EU have to bang a wall all the way around us. That's the only fair way they can treat the Irish. Uh, most, the majority of Irish trade goes through Britain. That, right? So you cannot stop it, you can't slow it down, you can't have electronic whatever, you just can't do that. That is discriminatory and incredibly elitist and can't happen. But we're learning. The British, we haven't realised just how elitist we were. Uh, I've got quotes from David Cameron, I think 2005, talking about how he was going to teach the EU to behave better in the way in the interest of the British. I mean, you look at these things, and it's embarrassing. Um, and that, but it wasn't part of the debate. There was the money funnelled through the DUP. I mean, that, that is interesting and needs to be investigated. Um, Properly, but simply realising that that one border makes this almost legally impossible. And then the really interesting thing about that is that no other country in the EU can leave. If it's so hard for the UK to leave and the effect is so bad on leaving, then any country with a decent amount of border and integration, right? Actually, ever close to unions happened. Us voting out have shown that the ever closer union for 40 odd years has got to such a point that it is irreversible. In a way, we're doing a favor to the rest of the EU. We may, when I fantasize about this sometimes, I think, you know, could we end up with an outcome where we have no MEPs, but otherwise we are essentially in. So we're not sending, I won't use a very rude word, but the kind of people we were sending to Brussels to say rude things in the parliament and we weren't ganging up with the Polish Law and Justice Party, which is what our government had been doing beforehand. So we weren't causing trouble and mucking up Europe. But we stay in the single yeah, market, we stay in the customs union, and we need a free movement of labour because essentially people in Oxford ain't going to eat without it. Just look who serves you food. <coughs> well, who's keeping the car factory running? 
You've only got, how do you think the colleges work? It's, it's going to be an incredibly, incredibly fast learning experience. Um, and I suppose the way I rationalise this is to say, maybe all countries which have been as powerful as Britain and particularly the English had been, you know, the richest country in the world 100 years ago, maybe they all get it wrong on the way down. And this is partly what's, what's happening to us. And that's a bit more forgivable. You know, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but maybe not. Uh, should we both answer questions together? Yeah. yeah. Um, to Andrew Oswald. Do you not think that the inability to put in analysis on the feelings of immigration is a weakness to your overall assessment because when I look at it on a pan-European scale and linking it to America, what unites the growth of parties like the AFD, the True Finns, uh, the Freedom Party of Austria in the Netherlands, uh, the Front National, is a reaction, and the AFD in Germany, of course, is a reaction to immigration. And if you look at it's in the United States, if you do a purely economic analysis, I don't think that you could say the reason why poor whites in the Appalachians were voting for Trump is the same reason why poor African-Americans in Chicago or why poor Hispanics in Los Angeles then voted for the Democrats. I don't think that purely financial analysis really holds much ground. Well, you ask a very good question and raise really good ideas. I would like to be able to control better in this analysis for something to do with immigration feelings. Yes, I would. Uh, I've looked at an awful lot of regression equations in my life, and I'm pretty sure if we did control for those, the financial feelings would be just as strong. But I'm, I'm just giving you my statistical instinct. I don't know how to do that in a practical sense, and in a way I don't know how to do it in an intellectual sense because, as I said, it, for me it's too close to the left-hand side variable. I'm against immigration. I'm in favor of uh, coming out of the EU, too, too close to being the same thing. But um, I think you make an excellent point, and I'd like to do it better. But I hope I've conveyed my general viewpoint. Um, thanks very much, both of you, for the talk. I was interested to see the difference between Professor Dorling's nice maps, which show quite a big difference between the cities and a lot of the rest of um, the country, and your result, Professor Oswald, that you don't find much of an urban-rural effect. Do you have any view on why you see that insignificance? Let's ask Danny Dorling that. Asking, that sounds like a hard okay. question. <laughs> Th things cancel themselves out. So Liverpool votes remain, but Birmingham votes leave. And they cancel themselves out so they don't come up in your um, analysis. And you've got regions as, as a dummy. Not yes, exactly. Quite not cities. biggish regions. Yeah. Yes. So that, that's, that's the guess. I mean, the interesting is just how different the two things are that we've been doing. So this is a survey, um, whereas I'm looking at basically anecdotal evidence, but not a survey. So it's a kind of triangulation. Um, another thing to be borne in mind... You might say statistically, but just logically, is that the, the patterns I've shown you, they're, they're closer to this is the effect of one variable 
bearing in mind the influence of another 25, you yeah. see what I mean? Like an epidemiologist would. Yeah. If, uh, how many apples does it take to improve your life expectancy a little bit? And um, the epidemiologist would control for everything else about you. You, you could look at, at what you might call more raw <coughs> correlations. And, and Dan is not doing so much holding of stuff constant. It's, not, it's neither right nor wrong to hold things constant. It just depends what intellectual question you want to pursue. Partial derivatives, that's the way to think. Um, I see these two sets of findings as linked in the sense that people's feelings about their economic condition surely relate not just to their absolute economic condition, but how they relate that to people they identify with, i.e. their relative income hypothesis. So, in a way, it's your poor Tories who feel alienated and frustrated because they're not doing as well as the people they identify with. And I think that Brexit really came out of alienation and um, uh, relative deprivation. And, um, and that feeds also into um, the regional story as well, I think. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I mean, when you look at the, the predictors of how people otherwise vote, you'll find a large number of Conservative voters voted for Brexit. If you were a Conservative voter in 2013, 14, 15, you, you are unlike a Labour voter. If you're a Labour voter, you can think, oh, if you've got the Labour Party, things might be better, right? But you already had essentially a Conservative Party with a few Liberals, and then you had a Conservative Party in the Tireless on its own, and you still had a situation where your grandchildren can never afford a house. Uh, and I've talked to so many older people, but I, do, I think this is brilliant, this old people who just said, I don't care whether less immigration means the house prices go down or whatever. My grandchildren have no future the way things are going. And these are quite affluent, you know, these are people with a, a house, but not so rich they can actually give their children and grandchildren deposits. Uh, and that's the group um, who were <coughs> stuck. I, I filmed one thing for Newsnight in Tewkesbury. And Tewkesbury sounds lovely, and it's got an abbey. But on the high street, it's a poundland and a tattoo parlour. And you yeah. actually look at Tewkesbury, and it voted out. Uh, and we only spotted for a day's filming there, two people who were not as white as white, you know. But if you ask people, oh, the immigration, things have got worse. And essentially, Tewkesbury is not that great and very expensive. So something's gone wrong in Britain. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you've both given a fascinating analysis of the past. Um, if you look to the future, it seems to me, according to the government's uh, statement that came out, that the harder the Brexit, the more the poor areas of Britain will suffer more, and, and it will be very serious. So if you were to remove your professorial hats and put on an activist hat, how would you work in the next months to rouse concern about the way we're going in a way that can shift some of those areas which, as you pointed out at the beginning, are not shifting at the moment. I'm afraid I never take off my professorial hat. <laughs> 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 you, 
Danny is a you know Danny's a fantastic guy and a brilliant analyst. You can probably tell that we work in slightly different ways, and um, and and both sorts of people are needed. I think you know both both sorts of analysts. But I'm not taking off my professorial hat. If you want me to predict uh, in a somewhat even-handed way the future, I, I imagine there'll be some version of hard Brexit. There'll be some economic losses. 10 or 20 years from now, we'll be back on roughly the same growth path. So it will be, have been a period of turbulence. And then 20 years from now, it won't seem such a big thing economically. Presumably, it will seem a big thing sociologically and so mm. on. But um, many countries have growth paths, I think, determined by things we don't understand and can do relatively little about despite what chancellors of the Exchequer and PhDs in economics say. So for me, the problem is the turbulence in the short yeah. to medium run. Yeah. If I was guessing, I'd say in 20 years' time, let's work out when I'm probably dead, 30 years' time. <laughs> in, in, in 30 years' time, I suspect there'll still be an EU, and we'll either be back in it or it'll be like Norway, but without the preferential treatment we currently have where we don't spend our fair amount of money in. Uh, and the biggest preferential treatment is we currently, we import young educated people and we export our elderly. And we actually had the best deal in, in the EU. Um, so, so it's quite stunning. Um, short term, I wouldn't campaign for enough, re enough a referendum. Not just on the pragmatic chance of actually losing it if you're a Remainer. But imagine that the Conservative Party, it hasn't been about Europe, it has been a death penalty. And they put a referendum out for the death penalty and you know that that would be won by the population. Would you have a second referendum on the death penalty? Or would you, as a member of parliament, say, no, that was a terrible mistake, I'm not going to sanction the death penalty as a member of parliament? So I, I happen to think referendum are generally a bad idea unless you have lots of them and get used to the idea, as they do in Switzerland, and then you know what you're doing. But one-off referendums can easily be brought by people with a lot of money, as happened in this case. simple thing. Um, you mentioned the elite not getting what they want. Um, going back to precisely what you said there, is it possible that the real elite did get what they want? Hmm. Yes. Lord, Lord Ashcroft got what he wanted. Um, it, uh, in a sense, a very tiny group of people who are very rich have, have got what they want. Yes, but it's the elite of the elite. It's not high table of Oxford colleges. Well, that's what's interesting. Yeah. Who, the people we, those of us who thought we were the elite find out that we're not. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds good, to, good for the soul, quite honestly. <laughs> You'd have to define your, um, your terms exactly. Um, I think. You know, you'd have to tell us your exact desired definition. <laughs> But there's an income distribution, a wealth distribution. You need to choose the cutoff, then I'll tell you the patterns. There was a young man at the back, actually. Thank you very much. Fascinating analysis. Um, just to add a different dynamic um, in terms of immigration, if you look at certain constituencies in, say, Middlesbrough, for example, or in Plymouth, Devonport, 
where in absolute terms the number of people who can be defined as immigrants is not very high, but where there may have been a large percentage change in terms of there being more immigration in, in percentage terms. Does that have an effect on people's feelings and then perhaps on their voting? Excellent question. Actions. Do you know the answer to that? I, I don't uh, think I know the answer to that. Other political sciences have found an effect, a significant effect of increase in immigration recently. Uh, so yes, and in Sheffield. Which Sheffield was a shock when Sheffield voted. Um, if you're staying up, if you remember, that was the point at which you went, oh, this is different. Um, so Sheffield has had an increase in the eastern side of the city that was quite, quite recent. Um, but you have to be told about the immigration. This isn't immigration that people actually see much of. Um, it isn't, you know, noticing that 200 Roma families have arrived in East Sheffield doesn't happen. You have to have press telling you about it. Um, and it's the rhetoric about the immigration, not the immigration itself, uh, that matters. And the, you know, the saying stories, why can't you get a council house, you can't get it for this, this kind of thing. Um, uh, we haven't, I think, looked at that enough. We've just assumed. So I often get angry emails, and I, she might, and I always reply courteously to the angry email. And I keep replying until I get the home postcode of the person I'm emailing. Um, at the point I get the home postcode, I can then check how many immigrants there are actually around their house or anywhere near them. And it's always in the middle of rural England, nowhere near. Um, and that's... So, and the same with, you know, with Middlesbrough and Plymouth-Devonport. Plymouth-Devonport is where people are now sent who can't afford to be housed in the rest of Devon because DWP have changed the rules. So the biggest problem for immigration in Plymouth-Devonport is filling up with people from Devon who are being sent there because of the housing benefit cap on the rest of Devon. And it must be pretty awful if you're in Plymouth-Devonport, um, but it's not so much people from outside. Um, and here, this is, this is Immigrant City. Um, you know, there are more immigrants in Oxford than anywhere else. It's just, it's you, right? Almost all of you have come from outside the county. Um, and yet, the people of Oxford, those who've hung around for a bit, um, haven't been as vocally out as they should have been. It's about 25% outvote in this city. Um, a city where there's no chance of your children or grandchildren being able to stay, let alone get a house, because of the effect of immigrants. And the immigrants are Oxford University, Oxford Brooks, and the people working in the hospitals. Um, and it's a far worse immigration problem than Middlesbrough in this city. Uh, do you want to get the mic? I'm an immigrant to Oxford and I come from Liverpool. And Liverpool is a very multiracial city, but has been so for a couple of hundred years mm. and then voted remain. So I think that supports your argument in a yeah. way. And, and know, knows a bit more about Ireland than most of Britain, maybe. Question to finish us off, or is everyone questioned out? Okay, in which case, <coughs> excuse me, um, would everybody please join me in thanking Danny and Andrew for two fantastic, wonderful, stimulating presentations? <laughs>